what stopped you from continuing to race was it your body telling you to stop or was it just you wanted to pursue other passions what was it it was the race results billy (laughs) (laughs) it was a lack of bravery and a lack of race results billy Hello, everybody, and welcome to Last First Day, the podcast where I, Billy Gleason, lead guests from all over the entertainment industry back through one more perfect day of school. Why? Well, their schools happen to have reached out and told me that these students were technically one day short of graduation. I know, rubbish. However, due to my magical powers in the space of about 45 minutes to an hour each week, I can walk them through one more perfect day, get them all graduated again, and everything is super. Everything is smashing. Everything is great. Now, if you've joined us before, you're a star pupil who knows exactly how this goes. If not, I highly recommend going back and checking out some previous episodes. We've had Will Buxton from Formula One and Drive to Survive, Liz Hines from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and award-winning stand-up comedians like Wilfred Padua. But this week... We are trekking all the way to the other side of the world for a trip to the land of Oz. We're racing down the tarmac of memory lane for the last first day of the brilliant bloke that is Lee Diffie. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Last First Day podcast. My guest today is one of the best-known voices in motorsports here in America who has commentated on Formula One, NASCAR, IndyCar, MotoGP, Supercross, and more. He has also lent his skills to the exhilarating worlds of summer and winter Olympics, as well as Premiership Rugby and the Rugby World Cup. Wherever he goes, he brings the action, but he also brings a barrel full of laughs and is just a sensational personality. I may have brought him on the podcast so America can finally figure out that English and Australian accents are two different things. My mate and soon to be yours, Lee Diffie. Lee, how are you, mate? Should I start that, Billy, by saying I'm not English? (laughs) You should. If we start there, just get it done off the bat. Do you get asked that often? I've been here for over 20 years, so it's a myriad of things of, I love your accent. Are you British? No. Oh, New Zealand? No. Are you from South Africa? No. Oh, it must be Australia, all that's left. By the way, I noticed how you uh, you interviewed your best British broadcasting friends before it got to me, uh, Will Buxton, Rebecca Lowe, then the Aussies come last. I, I see the way you work, Gleason. I'm shameless. I am shameless. I save the best for last. Isn't that what they say? And I just hope oh, Rebecca and Will go. aren't listening to any of this. It's been a pleasure to have them all on. I'm very, very fortunate to be able to go back through and tell stories with all of you. But for yourself, mate, motorsports has, of course, been a huge part of your life for very, very long time. Of course, first in Australia. And if I'm not mistaken, you did it very briefly in the UK as well with the BBC for Rally. And now your NBC resume speaks for itself. Is there a history of motorsports lovers in your family or were you sort of the lone wolf? No, it was it was passed down through the generations. My grandfather was massively into motorcycles, would race occasionally, was one of the founding members of a club in Australia and the club and the racetrack still exists in Australia. For whatever reason, I'm not sure. Well, certainly they I know that they didn't have the financial wherewithal. Times were tough. My grandfather just would not encourage or let my father race. And my dad was such a massive motorcycle fan. It was kind of one of his great life's regrets. So I guess when he ended up meeting my mom and they got married and had kids, my dad kind of lived vicariously through myself and my brother. I raced for a brief period of time for about 10 years as a kid. And then my brother raced for a lot longer than I did. And he was a very good rider. And then just by being in that, it's like, you know, when you, if you played football as a kid, you know, a lot of people from your football club, or if you played cricket or baseball or whatever it might be as a kid, you know, a lot of people. So we knew a lot of people in racing. And so friends who I still have to this day went on to become MotoGP world champions and car races and national champions. And so I grew up in that environment and then they ended up shaping and helping my career form. Did you just race bikes or did you jump between karting? Was it any and all, or were you focused on just bikes when you raced? It was just bikes. Yeah. And predominantly flat track. I did a little bit of motocross. Wasn't particularly good at that. Never raced go-karts, never raced cars. I'd never even commentated on cars. It's kind of strange the way that my career has gone to be so car heavy 
because bikes is my first love and bikes is everything I did until a little bit before I got into television and I would do some public address announcing on car racing a little bit. I did some truck racing as well. But, you know, it was bikes that got me to a certain point. But if I wanted to take that next step and grow, it was four wheels that got me to where I am. What stopped you from continuing to race? Was it your body telling you to stop or was it just you wanted to pursue other passions? What was it? It was the race results, Billy. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lack of bravery and a lack of race results, Billy. (laughs) So when you were a kid, was the dream to get into MotoGP, was that where you dreamed of potentially being someday? Not really. I'm being brutally honest. I've never even been asked that before, but no, I didn't. I just did it. I just rode because that's what our family did. You know, dad went and bought a bike and I'm talking to you from my house in Connecticut, up in my office upstairs. I have the motorcycle I raced from when I was six years old. And just last year I got it restored. So all these years later, the bike that I rode, which started my journey, which got me to where I am now, sits in my office every day. I get to see it every day and it's just fantastic. It's a great reminder of where it all started. That's beautiful. So do you still ride just casually yourself? Do you enjoy just getting out on the bike now? Yeah, I don't have a bike myself these days. I sold my last bike a few years ago, but my two sons do. They just ride casually on some property up in New York and we have a friend who has a bit of a small practice motocross track. And so the boys just ride at a very low level. They don't race, but they love it. They absolutely love it. And just that experience of cracking a throttle and going fast and the sound of an engine. I don't have any grand plans for them to be racers or anything like that. I just wanted them to have that as a life skill. Yeah. You've also commentated on multiple sports that before you started with them had a fairly niche following here in America. Even the Formula One was not what it is today. Same with bikes, even rugby that you've worked on, all these sports that have a bit of a niche following coming into it. Do you ever feel a lot of pressure trying to take these sports to the next level or are you always just relishing the opportunity? Probably the latter. Mm -hmm. I I don't feel the pressure it's kind of you're in that group of non-mainstream american sports you know i get to call the world's biggest motor race the indianapolis 500 which is at the core of american motor racing which is fantastic but then when you talk about some of those other things that i have done and continue to do it's not in the mainstream you know american main street sports mindset Mm. and so therefore it's not front page news of any publication And you might have to do some more explaining at dinner parties or functions as to what it is or what you look for. But, you know, I find that fun because you try and introduce it to a new audience and try and get some new fans. And you've seen the proliferation of Formula One in America, thanks mainly to Drive to Survive and the American ownership of the sport. And it's proof that it doesn't always have to be the way that it was, that you can get new fans. If we only went back 20 years ago, not even maybe not even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, Was English Premier League soccer as followed as it is now? No way. Was rugby as followed as it is now? No way. I can even remember at the last Cricket World Cup, people asking me about cricket here (laughs) in the States. I never would have thought that had happened. So this is a very competitive and complex sporting market and television sports market, but it doesn't mean that there's not still a little bit of room for new sports to the American market. Mm -hmm. Mate, a family member of mine, Adam, if he's listening, he's got really into snooker. And I was like, mate, you're way ahead of the game. I feel like we're a couple of decades out before America (laughs) really gets into their snooker. If there's a drive to survive for snooker, then we've really gone through all the sports. But going through all those sports, working on bikes, a lot of the image a lot of us get when you think of America is people on Harley Davidson's riding, you know, Route 66 or whatever. That is the image you get. So bikes are an image of the culture. So I guess... There is no reason why it couldn't translate into racing, but it never seems to have quite got there in America on that same level that, of course, we've seen Formula One reach now. But how enjoyable has it been to see the growth, to cover it over here and be a part of that culture? Yeah, I mean, it's terrific going to MotoGP at Circuit of the Americas and just to see how passionate the fans are is awesome. America has such a rich history in what was the Motorcycle World Championship. Now it's called MotoGP, the list of world champions. 
when you marry together the manufacturers, the motorcycle sales, and then the racing, you know, America is a really key market, just like Formula One. Like that's why Formula One wanted to break the nut, so to speak, you know, just get the door open a little bit here in the States. Even though there was such a rich and long history of Formula One here, it wasn't to the level that Formula One wanted. That's why they wanted to do it because of the population here, the fan base here, the companies here, the businesses here, the opportunities here. That's why everybody wants to, so to speak, crack it in America. There were two Moto Grand Prix here. There's now just one MotoGP Grand Prix, one visit here each year, but still, we'll take what we can get. It's great to have it here. And if I can speak back a little bit, where we met on the Formula One track, and it was a pleasure to work with you and the gang there, working at Circuit of the Americas when it's just started and it really starts getting this huge following here in America, and they're putting so much behind it. I remember we were there, and I think... Taylor Swift was doing concerts, Elton John was doing concerts, like they were really pushing the product. What was it like to see motorsports evolve like that here? Oh, it was terrific. And it was terrific to see the folks that created, you know, Circuit of the Americas and bring uh, Formula One to Austin. So a gentleman by the name of Tavo Hellman was the guy who did the deal with Formula One and Bernie Eccleston and brought it to Austin. And then there were some investors behind the scenes who now are still there. And Bobby Epstein has been running the track since its inception. I'm just pleased for everybody who took that massive step forward to say, we're going to get the land, we're going to build the track, to see when we were there in the early years, to see the crowds, et cetera. Now the crowds are more now. And I'm really pleased to say that. I wish NBC Sports was still involved, but sports rights change hands, all sports, different deals with different networks. That's just the nature of the beast. But it was really encouraging. It was terrific. And, you know, this is pre-Drive to Survive and pre-American ownership of the sport. And Formula One was searching for a home in the United States. And yes, it had a decades-long history and a very rich history of Formula One, the 20 years at Watkins Glen in upstate New York. And before Austin, there were nine other different venues, Austin being the 10th, and then on a 10-year contract. And then there were troublesome times during that initial decade of, is this deal going to get renewed? Is the city of Austin and the state of Texas still going to prop it up and support it? What's going to happen with Circuit of the Americas? I think we need another home. We need another US. You know, and I felt for them at that stage when people were saying we need another Grand Prix because it's like, give these guys a chance to show what they can do over a 10-year period. It was state-of-the-art at the time. It was purpose-built. You know, the drivers loved the layout of the track. Phenomenal fan opportunities. You can see a lot of the track from different vantage points, whereas most Formula One Grand Prix, you can't see a lot of the track. So Austin had so much going for it. And again, that was pre the explosion, Mm -hmm. pre-Drive to Survive, pre-American ownership. And now we've gone from being proud of that one Grand Prix, Billy, to having three in the US this year, which is just phenomenal. Three the... Who knows if they're going to be the concrete three for years to come? I mean, no Grand Prix really ever seems to be a forever Grand Prix. Some drop off the schedule for a few years. They move. We've seen it with the British Grand Prix. We've seen it with the German. It moves around and you never really know. You would think Circuit of the Americas has established itself in that regard. But you look at something like a Miami did fantastically well last year, but has the success of that opened up their mind to moving it somewhere else that would be able to do something like that? Would they be able to do something like that in Los Angeles or in New York? I think they've stumbled upon making the opportunities somewhat endless, which is kind of cool to see, but you of course want each place, as you say, you want each place to sort of have its chance and it not just be, okay, this year we're going to do it here, and then this year we're going to jump over here, because then it just gets way too chaotic and I think it's rough on not only the drivers, but the integrity of the sport itself when you start making one race a, a novelty race each year, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that where they're at now, you have to give whoever, it doesn't have to be US-centric, it can be anywhere, whoever stumps up the money for the rights fee to host a Formula 1 Grand Prix. I mean, it's so substantial. You've got to give them multiple years. And the Las Vegas race is different in the sense that it's Formula 1 that is the promoter, you mm. know, as opposed to a Stephen Ross in Miami or Bobby Epstein and, and the group at Coda in Circuit of the Americas, you know, so that's different. Formula One's invested a lot of money buying the land, putting up the permanent pit buildings. And so that just shows you about the American seriousness and investment in the sport of Formula One. Who would have ever thought? Who would have ever thought? You go around the calendar and you say, which country has two Grand Prix? 
throughout the history, there were certain countries that would have two Grand Prix, but it would be branded something different. Like in the UK, it was European Grand Prix. In Spain, it was Grand Prix of Europe. And it's happened at a variety of countries, Italy, etc. But no one country has ever had three like we have here and two on this modern calendar. So it's pretty awesome stuff. It is. We've spoke of all these wonderful sporting venues. You've been to so many great ones over the years, whether it be the Monaco Grand Prix, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the track and field venues. You've been to the Olympics. You've been to such wonderful venues. Are there any venues still outstanding that you dream of going to someday that you haven't quite made it to yet? Um, that's a great one. On the motorsport side of things, I think I could die a happy man if I ever got the chance to commentate the Daytona 500. Really? You know, it's on a different network right now. I'm not a full-time NASCAR commentator. I haven't commentated NASCAR in a few years. That would be pretty sweet because I don't think there's really from the motorsport side of things too much left. You know, I've done, like you mentioned, those Formula One Grand Prix, MotoGP, and I've done the Bathurst 1000, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, Daytona 24 Hours, Sebring 12 Hour, WRC World Rally all around the world, World Superbikes. Sorry, I'm forgetting the most obvious one that I do every year, the Indianapolis 500, (laughs) you know, um, coming up to do my fourth or fifth one of those this year, which is just fantastic. So yeah, to do the Daytona 500, which would be pretty cool. In my country of birth, Australia, I've never commentated anything at the MCG, which is kind of like the cathedral of sport in Australia. Mm-hmm. I'd love to call an AFL grand final. I've never commentated AFL, but that's dream stuff. That's never going to happen. But um, <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be awesome. Well, speaking of dream locations, oh, I'm so sorry in advance because this is so awkward to bring up each and every time. But I have to do it because this is apparently part of the job that I've assigned myself. So I got <laughs> I got a phone call earlier this week from your, do you call it high school or secondary school in Australia? Yeah, both. You yeah. call it both? You call it both? Well, it yeah. was both were on the phone with me. What was, what was the name of it? I couldn't quite hear it the other end of the phone. Corinda State High School. Corinda State High School. And that yeah. was Brisbane? Well, in Brisbane, in, in Brisbane, Australia, yeah. Corinda State High School. So I got a call from them and they'd said to me, Billy, look, I know you spoke with Buxton. I know you spoke with your favourite first, but I've got to get you on the phone here because I know his mate, his Australian mate, who is furious you didn't have him on the podcast first. We need to get a hold of him <laughs> and it's hard to get him on the phone because he's always on a plane. He's always going to all these great events that he's got to cover. He's got so many air miles. It's absolutely ridiculous, but he never seems to get the Wi-Fi package so we can't get a hold of him. But maybe next time he's in Connecticut underneath his office with his bike upstairs that he used to race when he was six, maybe you can get a hold of him and tell him that sadly we've got some news he was technically one day short of graduating high school and they're so sorry about it and they'd said to me look we don't have the guts to tell him and we're struggling to get hold of him we know you've got the podcast we know you were successful with it with will so would you mind giving it one more go and i said oh it's going to be tough. He's a busy man. He's a busy man. But I'll find a way and I'll get him on the phone and I'll ask. So I've lured him in with all this conversation on motorsport to get to the real point, And that is, Lee Diffie, would you mind reliving one more perfect day of school? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Let's do it. All right. This is the last first day of Lee Diffie. So, Lee, I want to start with the easy one with you. You said Corinda State. High school. Tell us a little bit about that. Where was it? What sort of school was it? So it's in Brisbane, in the southwestern suburbs of Brisbane. Nice area, really nice area, but not a private school, a state school, like a public school. Mm -hmm. About 1,200 kids when I was there. Wow. Probably a lot more now. My brother and sister went there, so I was the third member of the family to go there. And it was a great five years. I had a happy school life, enjoyed it had very happy memories. Oh, wonderful. So tell us about the very beginning, the routine. Do you remember what sort of time you woke up? What was for breakfast? What was your morning routine before getting out the door? Morning routine was awake at about 6.30. Okay. It was a pretty quick turnaround because I was on a seven o'clock bus. Okay, wow. Um, Routine was, would get spoiled sometimes, either get up for breakfast or mum would some days bring us breakfast in bed. That was a bit of a spoil. Even on a weekday, 
and mum worked a job. Mum worked at the local elementary school as a teacher's aide, so she had her stuff to get done, but sometimes <laughs> she'd treat us with a toast and a cup of tea in bed or just we'd get up and get cereal or whatever. An and absolute then, um, saint. Uniform on mm-hmm. and then out the door and the bus stop was across the road from our house, so that was pretty convenient. But that nice. was the only convenient part about the commute. So your uniform, a lovely thing that I like to hone in on because I feel like a lot of American schools don't experience this as much what was your uniform it was an horrendous color horrendous color it was gray like dark gray Mm -hmm. like graphite gray and the only point of flexibility you had was in the shorts you could choose whatever gray shorts you wanted but then it was this graphite gray top and across the pocket it had a green and gold kind of band across it, which was the colors of the school, green and gold. Mm -hmm. Gray pull-up socks if you had shorts on, so you could wear gray trousers. Or if you had shorts, you had to have the long gray socks with the gold and green piping around the top, like the striping around the top, and then black leather shoes. And that was the uniform five days a week. Ours was really just a black sort of suit. It was a black jacket, black trousers, black shoes, white collared shirt underneath, and then the tie was black, purple, and white were the colours on it, and you of course had the school emblem on the breast, and it looked just like a normal suit really, but all the other schools that we would walk around, there was one up the road that had a just a hideous brown suit with a bright yellow button up underneath and a brown tie. That was Derek Wood. There was another one that was like a blue suit with gray. We were the ones that really got lucky and whoever it was that decided <laughs> to just make it black. Because clearly our school colors were the purple, the black and the white. They could have put us in a bloody purple suit and made us look like Prince going to school every day, yeah, which yeah, yeah, could have yeah, been yeah. a blessing. But <laughs> we got away with it. So you're in your uniform, you're going over to the bus stop. About how long did the bus take to get to school? That was just part of it. That was stage one. Oh, wow. uh, the bus ride was about 20 minutes down to the local railway station, wow. which was called Wakeol. Catch a train. Train, I had to go, I think, four stops on the train and then get out at Corinda Station and then about another 20-minute walk to school. Wow. Mate, this prepared you well for working at NBC Sports because that sounds like my trip from New York to Connecticut whenever I had to, <laughs> whenever it's up there. Your school day started about what time? At nine. That's a trek yep. from a 7am start. So yeah. here on the podcast, I like to get the bad stuff out of the way first so we don't have to talk about that anymore. Are there any classes that you dreaded that if you saw them on the schedule, you considered pulling a sickie? Maybe you did sometimes. You don't want to see them anywhere near the schedule if you're having your perfect day of school. Well, I was so inept at music that really? I didn't do music. So music would definitely not be on my perfect day at school (laughs) schedule. There was a class that I quite enjoyed the topic, just the teacher really turned me off, and that was earth science or like geology. She made it so unenjoyable. That wasn't a great one either. She took it too seriously. She was too strict. What made her bad? All of the above. Took herself a bit too seriously. Just was crabby. I'm not letting you speed past music. What was it about music? Did you ever wish to have the ability? I would love to have the ability. My wife and two sons are awesome at music on a variety of instruments, and I would be flat out being able to play a recorder. I just have zero, zero musical ability, but I love music with such a passion. I wanted to be a DJ growing up, you know, and I love listening to music. And my wife even comments about how I have a a really good ear for picking certain instruments out in the background of a track. And, but I just have zero ability to play. I can't sing. My mum always told me I'm tone deaf. So for somebody with such love of music, I have zero ability in any aspect of music. And that's extremely frustrating, Billy. I'll, I'll, I'll die unsatisfied in this life. <laughs> did you ever try your hand at DJing or did you just hope to be it someday? No, like not a DJ that we think of it in the sense of these days, like a radio DJ. I had a friend who was quite a well-known DJ in Australia, and I thought, wow, man, that's the job. Imagine Mm. having that job. That would be awesome. Did you ever do any out-and-out radio, or has it only ever really been TV for you? No, the only thing that I came close to doing was doing the occasional report for radio. 
never sat in a studio and was the actual DJ or the host of a show, but I'd love to. I mean, it's something that maybe because I haven't done it, it's one of those elements of the media that fascinates me. Mm -hmm. I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to do and it remains so important as well because I think we're in an age now where so many people think, you know, TV and film have sort of taken over and streaming services that sort of push radio to one side. But as you can tell, you know, everyone's, not only is everyone listening to a podcast, everyone's got a podcast now as well, but the radio format is still there. And whether it's for sports or for news or whatever it is, it's a sincere art form. You don't really know how good they are until you hear someone do it poorly. Until you hear someone who's not that good at it, you quickly realize. Exactly. So wonderful. So, right, we've got the bad out of the way. Music's not going to be anywhere near it. And your geology, your earth sciences isn't going to be anywhere near it either. But if we're going step by step through which class, let's start with the very first class of the day. What would that first class be at 9 a.m.? And if there is a extra special teacher that would come along with it, who is that going to be? So I went to a school that had something that not many other schools had. We had a farm. Oh, wow. And, and so I studied agriculture, animal husbandry, horticulture, and we had animals on the farm. We had crops. We had bees. It was awesome. Wow. And it was right up in the back corner of the school. And that to me was my playground. It was just awesome. And the guy who was the senior teacher back then, his name was Ross Swanborough. Swanee. We used to call him Swanee. He let us call him Swanee. <laughs> and uh, it was just the best. We could drive tractors, we would plow the fields, we could shear sheep, and there was a classroom in the farm, in in one of the farm buildings, and it was awesome. I mean, you know, to me, where you had to go through the regular academic subjects of math and English and, and, you know, whatever else, biology, that was all great. But for me, the day centered around if one of my subjects took me to the farm, that just made my day. That's one of the most unique classes that's come up yet. And that sounds absolutely brilliant. Would you harvest honey from the bees and stuff like that? Were you actually absolutely. participating in all of it? Yeah. Yeah. Harvesting honey from the bees in our earlier years, not in the senior years, but in the earlier years, we got graded on and we raised money from it as well. And sorry for everybody who's going to be alarmed by this. Apologize about it. This was a long time ago, mm-hmm. but we would be graded on a whole process of selling chickens. Really? So to sell chickens, to take home and put to roast for dinner, mm-hmm. you had to capture and kill the chickens. And wow. so we would raise the chickens, you'd capture them, and then you would, I'll save the, the gory bits, but you would butcher the chickens and you got graded on the whole process. And you had to do the whole thing from start to finish. Did anyone refuse to do it or like back out or was too uncomfortable yeah. to do it? I imagine yeah, so. did. Yeah, certain kids did. They just couldn't do it. To be honest, it was pretty barbaric, but that's part of farming, right? I mean, if you go to the grocery store, you see chickens and beef and and what have you and fish and whatever. It's part of everyday life, but it was pretty unique story for going to school and having to kill a chicken and gut a chicken and pluck a chicken and then, you know, wash it, clean it, bag it, weigh it, sell it. Wow. Who are you selling it to? Teachers, the other teachers in the school. We'd take them around and say, you know, we'd collect names and... Uh, some teachers would want two or three and they'd freeze some. So Wow. That skill, whether it is the harvesting of the honey, whether it is with the chickens, whether it is milking cows, whatever it might be, it's an important skill that's always going to need to be there. And I feel like half the time, most of the people who know how to do it know how to do it because their family taught them how to do it because it's the family exactly. business. You don't really see it as a thing that's taught in schools some of that stuff is a really important skill to have and maybe it turns some of those people into vegetarians but it was still an important lesson for people so that's that's really cool so that class was called agriculture class with swanee there was a straightforward agriculture class there was a horticulture class there was an animal husbandry class so anyway yeah i did all of them and my part-time job i didn't work at maccas or i didn't work at a clothes store or a shoe store or whatever i worked on a farm as well Really? Uh, where I picked tomatoes and grapes and zucchinis. I thought I was going to be a farmer. I thought I was going to be working in, in agriculture in some shape or form. I, I do summer schools at Queensland Agricultural College. And anyway, I ended up being a PE teacher and then went on to become a broadcaster. <laughs> so go figure. <laughs> you know, natural progression. Gosh, so many questions about this. So 
you wanted to be that you wanted to farm was it because of this class and the teacher or did you already want to do that I think everything kind of flowed on from getting a part-time job at a local farm, you know, having the opportunity to do that at school. A couple of close mates, we were all doing the same subjects, and then we would go to summer school together as well. And then some of my other friends outside of school, they had farms, their families had farms, and our family didn't, no background in that whatsoever. I found it fascinating, and that's where I thought life was going to take me but clearly it did not. <laughs> is it something you still find fascinating to this day? If you're, you know, driving through middle America, seeing plows going through the cornfields, whatever it might be, do you sort of stop and take it all in? Are you fascinated by it? A hundred percent I am. In the COVID year of 2020, my wife and I bought a little property in the state of New York where we have some acreage and I get to walk around in my boots and we don't have any animals or crops yet, but it's kind of like living out a lifetime dream. Oh, amazing. So Diffie Farms coming soon. Watch out for <laughs> the eggs in your local supermarket. If we're stepping outside of that class and moving on with the day, we're not at lunch yet, but was there any sort of break in the day? Did you have sort of a, a recess, as they would call it here, anything like that? Yeah, there was like a, a short break because Queensland had a lot of hot weather. You know, you'd always look for a place of shade, sitting undercover. There were benches and logs under the trees and you'd try and I hung out with some guys who we kind of got away from the, the masses a little bit and we just used to like to sit by ourselves and have a chat. And it, there was lots of outdoors. Even though I've lived in the States for so long and our boys are at school here, that I always find interesting about US schools, how it, and mainly it's climate driven. It's all indoors. There's so much indoors. Mm -hmm. Whereas so much of my schooling was so much outdoors. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. So part of the perfect day, Billy, is is a lot of outdoor stuff at school as well. We were very fortunate for that at my school as well, where we actually had two massive fields on our school. We had a bottom field and top field where bottom field was usually where the big rugby pitches were, also where like the cricket square was for that time of year. And then top field, there was tennis courts and there was a football pitch that was rarely used because our headmaster hated football. So we never really got to have that. But even when they used to make us run cross country, it was through basically the woods around the edge of the school, which sort of looking back, as much as I hated cross country, I hated it with a passion it was so cool. You know, you were just like in the outdoors and it was this experience that now I've come over here and realized how many schools don't have that and that how, how many schools are so urban and it's, you know, just it's very concrete and it's all, you know, in an area like, like where I live here where they don't have a field to go and play sports on that that will be sort of off campus. They got to go get on a bus and go somewhere else to go and do that. So we were sort of fortunate to have it all there i guess one of those things i never really thought about when i was in school that kind of took for granted being out in the in the suburbs outside of london so we were able to spend our breaks in in similar ways unless the weather was bad if the weather was bad at all when you went anywhere near the rugby pitch like if you if you touched it because you could mess it up pe teachers would be all over you they would be absolutely <laughs> all over you if you mess with the rugby pitch before game day so we got your break you sit in having some shade just chatting with some mates and then you got to jump into your second class of the day what's your second class of the day gonna be mate pe pe for sure Really? We had some great PE teachers. We actually, it's funny, life has taken me now for the past 20 years to the United States. And we had an American teacher. One of the PE teachers was American. And we just had a great PE staff. They just made it fun. Whatever we were doing, whether it was leading up to cross-country competition, whether it was leading up to track and field season, whether it was just some lighthearted games, whatever it might have been, just PE was always great. So, yeah, yeah. that's that's got to be high on the agenda of the perfect day of school. Any particular teachers, coaches that ran it who stood out? There was this crusty old Aussie guy who ran the PE department called John O, Rob Johnson, and then uh, Ken McGuire was the North American. Great guys. I mean, I think you, you gravitate to the teachers that A, are the fun subjects, but also they make it good for you. They made the, they made learning and they made the lessons fun. I think they're the ones that, that resonate with you. Peter Newcomb was another guy. Mm. I don't remember. I remember all these names after all these years. <laughs> I guess they must have had an impact. Definitely, definitely. And you were a PE teacher yourself for how long, man? Uh -huh. 
Yeah. After I graduated uni, I wasn't sure. I wasn't hell bent on being a teacher. That That's what I went to university for, but I wasn't sure. I worked a myriad of different jobs as commentating was starting. That was just one of a multitude of things that I did. And I ended up working at a private school called uh, Ipswich Grammar School, mm. but it was very brief. I was there for two and a half years, but it was a great experience. I've still got friends who teach there. I grew up in the state of Queensland. It was Queensland's first and oldest grammar school. It was totally, it was the antithesis of what I experienced as a student, you know, because I went to a, I went to a state school and uh, this was a very posh private school. And, you know, when I'd walk into a room, the kids would stand up. They don't sit down until you tell them to sit down. It was yes, sir, no, sir, Mm -hmm. uh, full ties and blazers every day. And it was a very, um, it was very different to the way that I went to school, but it was good. It was, um, you know, a lot of those things about being a teacher, has helped me for years in what I do as a broadcaster as far as organization and the communication and the discipline and the, the, the prep looking forward, be ready now. Don't, don't be surprised by anything then. And the communication is a big one and having to stand in front of between 20 to 30 kids of a variety of ages and you're ostensibly performing every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the only broadcaster that used to be a teacher. And for those who have done that, they say exactly the same thing that you know, being able to speak live in front of groups and be have that reactionary flexibility to whatever the kids are saying and move fast, think fast, think on your feet. That's television in a yeah. nutshell. No, it definitely is. Did you take any of those lessons you learned from Jono and Ken McGuire, anything that they taught you that sort of became a part of you as a PE teacher that you projected back out? I think the way that you treated the kids, mm-hmm. you know, I was a young teacher too. Like some of the kids weren't, I think when I started teaching, I was like 23, 22, 23, 23. Mm-hmm. So some of the kids weren't that much younger than me. They certainly were a lot bigger than me, the <laughs> rugby boys. <laughs> they, they could have picked me up and thrown me, but I had to fake my way through it, Billy. I had to make myself sound scarier than I was. Every teacher did that with us, every PE teacher, because also you look at me, I was a big bastard then, I'm a big bastard now. So when I was out on the rugby pitch and you've got the teachers teaching you how to tackle, how to do whatever, there was a teacher named Mr. Holland who everybody loved, but he knew how to be your worst nightmare. Everyone respected him, but you did not want to get on the wrong side of him. And I remember one time we were in a rugby practice and he was in very good physical condition, shorter guy, bald guy, but very good physical condition. And we're doing a tackling practice and he's getting fed up with the team because he's like, no, you're not, you're not wrapping up properly. Like, let me show you how to do it. And he just goes, Gleason, the biggest one out of the lot. I'm like, great. He goes, run at me hard as you can. So you sure you want me to run at you as fast as I've never seen you tackle anyone before. He goes, fast as you can. I go, all right. You know, I step back, go into it. He tackles me harder than anyone's ever tackled me in my life. And that's how you do it. And I'm just like, lads, can we actually be better at the tackling? Because I really don't want him to do that to me again. That would be rubbish. But that was, everyone respected it. Everyone was fine with it. So we got PE, PE set, and now... We are finally at lunch. Lunch is a big, big part of the day. Big question. Did you bring? Did you buy? I'd say a combination. Really? Mum was always great about having lunch unless maybe she ran out of time or I'm not sure. And then we had, so we didn't call it a, uh, a commissary or a canteen or anything like that in Australia where you would get lunch at schools called a tuck shop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the tuck shop had anything from good old Aussie pies and sausage rolls to, you know, ham and salad sandwiches, ham and cheese sandwiches. I don't really remember anything that was overwhelmingly fantastic out of the school (laughs) tuck shop that that, uh, would have been high on my priority list. But I would say a combo of of take or buy, uh, Mm -hmm. depending on the day and the week and whatever. And I don't know, maybe Friday's mom said buy or something end of the Mm -hmm. week. It might've been a treat or something like that. And, and then it was, it was usually eat, eat with your mates if you had to go to training sessions or whatever sometimes they'd squeeze that in in the lunch break and if not you were just free you're free to go up to the cricket nets you could kick balls around you could go and do handball handball courts there were basketball courts just free play so a variety of things and and it was a very active school so if i'm pressuring you though for what the meal was was there an ideal thing your mum ever sent you with well God, who, do, who doesn't love an Aussie meat pie? Aussie meat I'd just pie. say if it's the ideal day, I'm having a pie for lunch. Yeah. 
They made fun of the meat pie for a long time, America, but now they're sneakily starting to get into it and don't want to admit they've been wrong this whole time. It's perfect. It's everything they love. There's certain, there's certain places that you can get it from here. Yeah, can East you get Coast proper Aussie West. ones? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. i got some mates who own a place in Atlanta called the Australian Bakery. It's in Marietta Square in Georgia. Yeah, there's a, there's a variety of different places around the country and, and they all like they all ship to you and mm. they all look after the various uh, embassies and consulates around the country. So, yeah, you can still get it. So your lunch is going to be an Aussie meat pie. We're getting very close to the end here. All you got to do is we need one more class and then you got one more assignment to finish the day. But what is the final class that fills your schedule? So I know that it is biology. I did very well at biology and I can see the teacher's face. Mm. He had a big beard. I feel so guilty. I can't remember his name. But again, it comes back to he made it fun. You know, that secret ingredient to engage the hardest audience of all, which are kids. They've got so much running through their minds and, you know, difficult to, you know, hold their attention span. And I will forever admire teachers because I think it's a very thankless job. Mm -hmm. You're certainly not financially rewarded the way you should be as it turns out by my in-laws my late father-in-law and my mother-in-law um, were both educators as well so wow. i definitely have a soft spot i say that i was a teacher but i did it for such a short period of time that you know i didn't really do the job much justice but i loved it it taught me a lot and i always have a lot of respect wherever not just in australia but here in the u.s and any teachers anywhere around the world because it's a tough gig you still participated in it, mate, and that's a massive thing to do that a lot of people have never done. And you sound like someone that was so passionate about it and cared so much for it that that is a credit to you, whether you did it for two and a half years, 20 years, 40 years. That's great. Did you find the difference between, of course, being a PE teacher and being a teacher who teaches something like biology or the students sat behind the desks? Was it ever easier as a PE teacher to sort of reel in the unruly kids because you've got them running around and exerting some energy? Or is it harder on the people who have them sat behind the desks and they're getting a bit restless? Well, I I was fortunate because I got to do a little bit of both. I got to do some classroom teaching as well as having, you know, outdoor lessons. And Mm -hmm. I would always try and unlock the secret to a kid that was misbehaving like why like what's driving that why are they being a smart ass or why are they being disrespectful or and again it was pretty easy at the school that i was at because it was so disciplined driven and parents were paying a lot of money for the kids to go there so you knew you had the support of the parents as well so i'm not talking about anything too drastic here but it was just unlocking like why are those kids behaving that way and how do i turn them around you know like how do i turn this negative into a positive and mm-hmm. that was always a bit of a bit of a challenge as well it's fascinating because whatever class and whatever year level that you had it was between 20 and 30 independent individual stories mm-hmm. you know and different families and different backgrounds and kids who were first to go to that school and their families sacrificed so much to get those kids to that school, or they could have been the third kid in the, in the line of children in that family to go to that school. So they knew the drill. And, you know, it was always a different story and different circumstance with each class and each student group that you, that you stood in front of. So again, coming back to that, performing to a live audience, you know, five days a week, uh, it was, it was an interesting run. Yeah. I've done to make a weird comparison, but I've done stand-up comedy for many years and sometimes you, you get that unruly audience. You get the part of the audience that isn't enjoying your material or isn't happy with what's going on. And I've always been that comedian that said, the audience is never wrong. However the audience feels is how they feel. Maybe I am having an off day. Maybe the comedian before me has upset them. It's an art form where as you're doing it, you're still trying to unlock why and how you can get through to as many people as you possibly can. And it's an ever-moving target. So, mate, the day is built. We've got the day built, and I'm going to take a quick speed through it before we get to the very final thing, if I may. So, we've gone all the way back 
to Brisbane. We've gone to Corinda State High School, about 1,200 kids there. You've woken up about 6.30 a.m. Preferably, mum's woke you up, breakfast in bed, toast and a cup of tea. You've got up and you've only got about 30 minutes to turn it around, so you've got to be quick. You're putting on your uniform, your dark graphite grey with your shorts. You're going in, your green and gold on your blazer and on your socks. you got to rush over to the bus stop, 7 a.m., because you've got to get over to the railway as fast as you can. Then you get on the railway, you get to school, you get there about 9 a.m. You have not got music anywhere near it as much as you would like music to be near your schedule <laughs> it ain't gonna be near your schedule but you're also not gonna have earth science near your schedule because you can't stand that teacher what is gonna be on your schedule though you're gonna start the day with some agriculture swanee is there to welcome you in you're gonna harvest some honey you're gonna deal with some chickens you're gonna have a good time outdoors before you go into the break which is gonna be a little bit more time outdoors sitting in the shade because it can be bloody hot out there and then you're going into your next class which is pe jono's gonna be there ken mcguire's gonna be there you get a bit of running around get it out of your system before you get into lunch because there is an aussie meat pie waiting for you it's fine you've already burned off the calories in pe so it's gonna be good and then you're gonna go swing a cricket bat around because you are active you are lean mean you're in the best shape of your life back then and then now you're jumping into biology and you've got that teacher who made it fun the name's gonna come to you i'm sure you're gonna text me in about three days when you remember (laughs) but you got biology because that teacher made it fun and then the very last portion of the day you go into the auditorium the great hall whatever it was at the school where all the kids gather for assembly and you've got to give advice to the kids of today kids that want to succeed in this world maybe want to be like you maybe want to get into sports broadcasting maybe just want to learn about the lessons that you've learned in life and what worked for you and what didn't so what advice are you sharing with the kids today to either tell them what to do or what not to do three words billy have a go have a go have a go don't be afraid to have a go don't be afraid to put your hand up don't be afraid to ask a question ask for that internship make that phone call chase down that opportunity and recognize when there is an opportunity and sometimes people give you those opportunities but not everybody takes advantage of that and not certainly not everybody acts on those opportunities. And that would be the one thing I would love to leave those teenagers with is that make the most of any opportunity that is given to you because they're not all going to materialize. Some you're going to like, some you're going to hate. Some will go somewhere, some will go to a dead end. It doesn't matter. At least you've had a go. I've seen a lot of people over the years just, fade away and because they didn't want to have a go you're a great example of having a go mate you've already gone to places you know that you could have only dreamed of going right you did have a go you did ask those questions you did see opportunity and you seized on it and to me when you see young people and they're either afraid or they don't have that zest they don't have that energy it frustrates me it makes me sad you know i, I and not everybody's wired the same way but you don't have to go at it at a thousand miles an hour. You can you can still have a go, but at a slower speed, but at least have a bloody go. And you'll be surprised at what the outcome can be. I love that advice. And I think I need to hear that every now and again. You probably still need to hear that every now and again as well to just remind yourself to keep pushing. You never know what's coming next down the pipeline. So... Thank you so much, mate. I I so appreciate you being on the podcast. It was really, really wonderful to have you here. Before I let you go, is there anything you want to plug, talk about, share with the world? The Indianapolis 500 is coming up again on NBC, which is going to be awesome. Uh, Track and field world championships later this year from Budapest in Hungary. It's going to be another, going to be another fun year. I think the IndyCar series is has been it's only two races uh, young <laughs> this year, but two phenomenal races. Uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship is great. Monster Energy Supercross has been off the hook. So there's, a, there's been a lot of fun projects already uh, that I've been a part of this year and, and looking forward to um, another busy but really fun and productive year. You're a busy, busy man, mate. And I know I said something to Will to thank him for what he did for my career to this point. You've had a massive, uh, massive role in my career to this point. And part of what you said about have a go, that plays into this because I remember in the early stages of my career, people saying things like, don't go up to talent, leave talent alone, 
don't talk to the talent and they sort of treat the talent like this precious little island that you're not supposed to touch. That was never the case with you lot and you never acted like that around any of us. It was so wonderful to be with the F1 gang who were so gracious with their time no matter who the person was. Clearly had such enjoyment for their job which was infectious to the rest of us. The same as the teachers we're talking about. If they enjoyed their job they were able to pass it off onto you. You did that for us and personally from me Formula One was one of my favorite events to work. It was obviously such a shame for it to go away from NBC Sports. And as as you said, that's the nature of the beast and who knows what could come around again in the future. But as a little kid who watched that with his dad growing up and you know how big it is in the UK and across Europe, it's a massive sport. To this day, the fact that I'm the kid, my dad is furious that I'm the kid who got to go on the Formula One tracks when I was the <laughs> one of the two brothers who was the ungrateful little one that didn't appreciate getting dragged around the car shows growing up because I was the kid whose feet hurt and I just wanted a Fanta and to sit on a bench in the shade. But I got to go and I loved it and I got to have these incredible experiences that you were a part of, the whole gang was a part of, of, and I'll absolutely never forget it. So you've done that for me. You've done that for so many more. So thank you for the infectiousness you bring to the job that you pass to people through the screen and also people who work alongside you. It was just a delight to work alongside you, my friend. No worries, Billy. The same back to you, mate. And uh, thanks for um, even thinking of me to be on your podcast. And, and I hope that your listeners have enjoyed it. And if I can say one thing to your listeners, Keep listening to Billy because he's funny, he's talented, he'll always tell you great stories. And uh, keep it rolling, mate. All the best with it. And I'll, I'll be one of your regular listeners and followers. Oh, that's too kind, mate. Thank you so much. Wishing you all the best. And so ends another Last First Day at the Last First Day Academy. Thank you so, so much to Lee Diffie for joining us for his Last First Day for the first last time. And if you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to spread the word, give us a rating, follow us on social media and comment with your most ridiculous school lunches. I want to hear what you ate back then for your body simply has no chance of processing today and more. Thank you to Ruben Alexander for the theme music. Thank you to Acast for hosting. Thank you so much to you for listening. And thank you so much to my next guest who is currently tucking themselves into bed, chucking their nightlight on and getting ready to start their last first day. But until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.